I'd like you guys can grab a seat. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Chris, and uh, we are now in week three of our David series. And I feel like uh, as I just kind of dig into First and Second Samuel, uh, God is really uh, using His Word to to shape me, to mold me, to to teach me what it what it really means to have a, a heart after His own heart, and so. Uh, I'm just trusting him, even this morning, to continue to, to shape us, to, to mold us as a faith family through his word this morning. And so, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and grab that, open it up, or if you have it on a, maybe a device, perhaps something like that, you can open that up and go to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and that's where we're going to hang out uh, together this morning in God's word. And uh, just in case you missed last week, uh, this, is, this is what's happening in the, the narrative as we kind of step into chapter 18. David has just done the unthinkable. And so if you hear last week, uh, David took down Goliath, really. Uh, God took down Goliath through David, and David actually is, is really clear about that, that it's, that it's God, it's, it's not him who's done this uh, great thing. But the most improbable upset in military history has, has just occurred. It just happened. And uh, as we kind of step into the story, the nation of Israel is in complete celebration mode. I mean, they're just, they're celebrating this incredible victory. Um, they probably thought for sure uh, they were doomed. The Philistine army was going to come in. Uh, wipe them out, enslave the, the whole country. And so, but now they've won. David has slain Goliath, the giant who uh, everybody thought was unbeatable. And so the whole nation is, is going nuts. It's just like this huge party scene. So First uh, Samuel chapter 18, we're gonna start in verse two. And it says, and Saul took him, he's talking about David. And so Saul took David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And so now David has been placed in the palace Okay, so, so get this, in, in one day, David goes from the sheep field to the battlefield to the palace, literally, in a day. Th- things are going really well for David. I mean, who wouldn't want this? This is, this is a really sweet deal. Go down to, to verse five. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. So now David is like the commander of the Israeli army. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, talking about Goliath there, the women came out of all the cities singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so as they're, they're coming back from the battlefield, from defeating Goliath and this massive Philistine army, uh, all of the women from all the cities in Israel, they come back as the soldiers are, are coming back home. They are apparently lining the streets. They are playing musical instruments. They are singing. This is, this is a party. This is a festival. People are rejoicing. We also see that Saul makes David the commander of the Israeli army, and everybody loved it. And apparently, one of the songs that the women were, were singing as the soldiers were marching by, one of the lyrics said, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David has struck down his tens of thousands, right? And so, so Saul makes David the commander of the army. Everyone loves David. Do you see, what, do you see what's happening here? 
in the matter of literally a day, David goes from a nobody, he was just a nobody in a sheep field, to now he's a national hero, he's a national celebrity overnight. Now his success doesn't end there. Go down to, to verse 14, it says, and David had success in all his undertakings, meaning everything that David touched turned to gold. He just was successful in anything that he did. Why? For the Lord was with him. And this is a theme that we're gonna see kind of as we go through this series is that our success in life, especially in spiritual things, always connected to us, walking with the Lord, being obedient to him, which is what we see with David here. Verse 15, and when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Now go down to verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. David is the man now. He goes from just kind of a shepherd boy, a nobody, nobody even knew who he was really, to now a cultural icon, right? People are literally writing songs about him. You can imagine him just like going into the, the streets of Jerusalem now and people are swarming him like, David, 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 over here. Yeah, can you sign this autograph for me? Like the Jerusalem paparazzis like following him around, snapping pictures. Like he can't go anywhere. There's crowds. He is the man. Could you imagine being David? Right? He, he's the young forgotten brother in the sheep field and now he's tasting this level of success, this level of fame. Could you imagine how hard it would be to keep your eyes focused on God with all of this swirling around you, especially as a young man, as David was at this point in his life? See, we, we, we all tend to want this level of success. We want success in our lives, but the reality is so often, most of the time, we're just not, we're not ready for it. See, success is one of the greatest tests of life. The greatest test of life oftentimes is not failure. Oftentimes, the greatest test of life is actually success. Success can be a really dangerous pathway if our eyes aren't completely locked in on God. So here's the first truth that I want you to walk away with this, this morning, it's this. Success reveals the true condition of your heart. Success reveals the true condition of your heart. See, success is a temptation that crushes many people. We see the rubble of people who have tasted success all around us, people that have just been destroyed by their own success. Now, listen, success comes in a lot of different forms, and so don't, don't think, like, I've never had success because I'm not a king or I'm not famous. We're not just talking about, like, millionaires or CEOs or people in Hollywood or anything like that. We all, we all kind of experience different successes in different forms. And so, for instance, perhaps, uh, and I know this has been the case for some of you, you have a business or something like that, and all of a sudden you start to really taste some success in your business. And maybe for the first time, uh, you, you get some real money. And so you're like, man, I got, for the first time in my life, I got this disposable income. And so the question is, man, when you taste that level of success, where does your heart drift in those moments? Or maybe in the business uh, that you're in or your workplace, like you start to move up. You get a promotion and, and people are like singing your praises. Like in that moment, where... Like, where does your heart go? Where, where does your heart drift? Or we can move it to the church context, right? Like, maybe you're a small group leader here, and, and, and your group grows, man. Like, new people are coming to your group, and 
Uh, maybe it multiplies, like you get so big, you, gotta, you plant, you branch another small group, and maybe the next year it grows even more, and you, you plant and you branch another group, and all of a sudden, Pastor Jonathan, he's using you as an example in the small group trainings, right? Like, where does your, where does your heart go when you taste that kind of success, or you're on the worship team? And we have a great worship team, right? But you come off the stage and people are singing your praises like, wow, you were amazing, you're so gifted, you're so talented, like I really was worshiping the Lord. Or, you know, like whatever it is. It can, or what about this? What about for parents? Like you're, you're in that stage of life where you're parenting and your kid has uh, some success, you know, in the academic world or the sports world or even the spiritual world, right? Your, your kids begin to grow with the Lord and your, your kid is the one who's, like leading people to faith in Christ at their high school and starting Bible studies and stuff. And people are coming up to you like, man, you're, you're an awesome mom. You're an awesome dad. Like, how do you raise your kids like that? Like, and your head goes, right? And you're like, and you stay humble on the outside, like, oh, it's all the Lord, not me. But on the inside, you're like, I am a good dad, you know? Like, I'm really good at this. So when we taste success in whatever form that we taste success, and we all experience success in different ways, where does your heart drift? Does your heart tend to drift towards pride, selfishness, loud music? <laughs> there we go. Does your, does your heart drift there? Or, like in those moments, do your, does your heart tend to drift towards more of reflecting that praise, reflecting that glory back to God? Like, is your, is your thought, when you have that success, people begin to praise you, is your thought like, God, man, thank you. Thank you, for, thank you for using somebody like me. Thank you for entrusting success to someone like me. Like, God, I, I know that this is ultimately, this is not about me. God, this is really all about you. God, would you just like help me keep my eyes on you? Help me walk faithfully with you. I remember a TV show uh, a few years ago. Some of you guys may remember this, the same show, but there was a, a show. It's kind of like a documentary, I guess, that followed people that had won the lottery. Do you guys, do you guys ever see that show? And um, so they followed all these people that had won the lottery. And it was amazing to me, almost without exception, every single person that had won the lottery had their life completely train wrecked by it. I mean, like, I'm talking broken families, I'm talking crime, I'm talking bankruptcy, suicide. I mean, like, it was nuts. And I remember like sitting there watching this show and just thinking to myself like, man, God, thank you. Thank you for not allowing me to win the lottery, even though I don't play the lottery. Thank you for not allowing me to be filthy rich. But on the same token, like in the same thought, there's this little part of me that's like, I'd like to try it. Like, <laughs> like I, know, I know nobody else can handle it. And they're crushed by immediate success and riches, but like I'd like to see if I, if I could do it, right? It's just a reminder, like, friend, listen, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. And this leads right into our second uh, truth this morning is this. Sometimes, oftentimes, God's greatest mercy is not giving us what we want. Oftentimes. Why? Because God knows it would destroy us, it would wreck us. And so often, see, we want success we want all these wins, we want all these victories in our lives that our character and our spiritual maturity just isn't ready for yet. And I've seen this play out as a pastor with uh, my colleagues, other guys in, in ministry a thousand times. You guys have seen this play out. I mean, like, so you've seen it, right? Some guy gets success, 
whether it's like the worship ministry world or the preaching ministry world or whatever it is, gets success, gets fame, people start talking about him, and his success outpaces his spiritual maturity and what happens every single time. Guy crashes and he burns. I was thinking about this biblical principle uh, this week and I was thinking about my kids and how uh, I'm really convinced if my kids could, could make all of their own decisions that they would choose pretty much to eat like pizza and chocolate cake for every meal uh, three times a day. They would never eat vegetables. Now, if I gave my kids that as, as their diet, what would eventually happen to them? They, yeah, they, they, exactly, they would end up sick. They would end up with all kinds of health issues. And so the reality is that it's my love for them. It's, it's in my mercy to them that I withhold from them that which they think they want, but that which I know would destroy them. And so I was just thinking this week, maybe we need to like reframe, we need to switch our prayers from God, give me this, God, give me that, God, give me more of this. Maybe we need to switch from that type of prayer to God, please don't give me more than I'm ready for. God, please, do, please don't give me that which would crush me, that which I, I think that I want, but you know in the end would absolutely crush me. Please don't give me more money than I can handle. God, please, please don't give me more influence than I can handle because the reality is we, we know what we want, but God knows that which would destroy us. God knows that which we need. And I'm not sure what in the world that is. <laughs> is the, are the Patriots playing already? Is the, is the Pats fan back there? We good? All right. So when you're tempted to kind of, you know, like I am at times, throw yourself a, a pity party, and you just want, want to ask yourself or you want to ask God these questions like, man, God, why, why, don't, why don't I have this in my life? God, why, 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 don't, I, why don't I have that? Why, why don't you give me more of this? man? You want to know why, believer? You don't have all those things that you think you won't think you need? It's because God loves you. Listen, don't, don't despise those seasons of your life that God has you in because here's the reality. If you can't be satisfied in God with where you're at right now, you're not gonna be satisfied with God when he gives you more later. See, David was just, notice this, David was just as satisfied in God in the sheep field as he was in the palace. And the truth of the matter is his life was a lot simpler in the sheep field. Now, at, at the risk of sounding like a prosperity gospel preacher, um, which, by the way, if you've been around a little while, you know that we're, we're not that here, right? We don't believe that, hey, if you just have enough faith, if you just give more money, then God's gonna make you like filthy rich and happy and healthy and you're never gonna have any problems in your life. Like, that, that's a load of, of bunk. So I'll, I'll kind of just preface that and say to you on the front end of what I'm about to say, I promise you that I didn't become a prosperity preacher since last week. I think you'll understand what I say in just a minute. So this is what I wanna do. I just wanna simply lay a question in front of you for your consideration. And this, this is a question that I really wrestled with this week, and honestly, it was a question that I was convicted by. But here's a question that I just want you to consider. Man, if you, in your life right now, not where you're gonna be, not where you wish you were in your life, but where you are right now, if you're not being faithful to God, if you're not being obedient with what God has already given you, like why would he ever entrust you with more? Why would he ever, if, if you were God, would you entrust you with more? Like if you're not faithfully using the spiritual gifts that he's given you right now to advance his kingdom, to, to build up the body of Christ, 
why in the world would he give you more influence? I mean, if you're not being faithful in, in the job that you have, if you're not working hard with a great attitude, not complaining, why would he entrust you with more responsibilities when you can't even ha- handle what you have right now? If you aren't being faithful to, to live generously, to invest extravagantly in Jesus' kingdom, in his bride, the local church, with the money that he's entrusted you right now, why in the world would he ever give you more? Now, hear, hear me say this. I, I'm not saying, hey, you just have more faith, just volunteer more, just start tithing to the church and that God's gonna just like take all your problems away and he's gonna make you filthy rich. Like, that is a, that's a lie from hell. That's not true. But know this, Jesus himself taught in the gospels, and you guys know this, those who are faithful in little are faithful in what? They're faithful in much. Faithful in little, faithful in much. That's a biblical principle that we see all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those who are not faithful in little will not be entrusted with much in his kingdom. And so believer, listen, just be faithful right where you are in life, right in the job that you have right now, not the job you wish you had. Be faithful, be obedient in the marriage you're in right now, and not in the marriage you wish you had. Be faithful with the time that you have right now, not in the time that you wish you had more of. Be faithful with the talents God has given you, and yes, be faithful with the resources, the money that God has blessed you with. I love this uh, quote from Martin Luther King Jr., King said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Friend, be satisfied, be faithful right where God has you. God's greatest blessing in your life right now may be that he's not giving you what you think you want. And spiritual maturity is being satisfied in God anyway. And so how do we survive the test of success in our lives? Really one way, and that's to have a heart after God's own heart. To have our, our eyes on him. As, as long as our eyes are, are on God, we're, we're good. But as soon as we, we take our eyes off of God, we begin to turn inward. We begin to start thinking like, yes, I am kind of awesome. Yeah, the success in my life, these things that I have, the success in the business world, the money, the accolades, the whatever. Yeah, it's because I'm good. My kids turned out good because I'm a really good parent. Like as soon as we start to, to think that, as soon as we start, even in our own minds, to steal God's glory, right? Because most of us aren't gonna say it out loud. It starts in our hearts. And as we learned in the, the kind of the opening of the series, God looks at the heart. As soon as we start stealing God's glory, even in our hearts, we begin to sink. I love the story of uh, Peter in the Gospels, right? You guys remember that story where uh, the disciples are out in a boat and there's like this massive storm and the wind's blowing and it looks like the ship is gonna sink or the boat's gonna sink and all of a sudden Jesus is walking out and Peter's the brave one of the disciples and he says, Lord, can I, can I come out? And Jesus is like, yeah, man, come on. And Peter steps out on the water and as long as he's dialed in, as long as his eyes are on Jesus, he's fine. But as soon as he looks at himself, as soon as he looks at the circumstances around him, the ways around him, what begins to happen? He begins to sink immediately and we are just like Peter. We survive the test of success by keeping our eyes on Jesus. You start looking at yourself, 
You start thinking about yourself. You start thinking it's all about you. You start thinking that you did it. You're already done in that moment. You're already sinking. You're already drowning. David shows us that staying humble, walking obediently, focused on God in seasons of success is the key to not being crushed under the weight of it. So what about Saul? All this is going on with David. Just incredible success. Everything David does turns to gold. He's just, he's incredible at everything he does because God is with him. He's being obedient to God. He's walking with God. And God is blessing his faithfulness. What's Saul's reaction to all of this? Now, you gotta remember, David is the one who saved Saul's life on the battlefield. David is now faithfully serving Saul in the palace. So even though David knows that the kingdom is eventually gonna be his, the kingship is gonna be his, David is patient. David is submissive. He is serving Saul. The reality is Saul, listen, Saul had every reason to love David. Saul had every reason to trust David, to love him as a son. What's his reaction to David's success? To God's hand of blessing on his life. Let's look at verse eight. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him, the song about, you know, hey, Saul is great, but David is even greater. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul, Saul is seeing all this play out, and he's like, man, he's got everything. The only thing, <laughs> the only thing left for him is my, is my crown. Verse nine, and Saul eyed David from that day on. That means from that day forward, Saul had it out for David. He was trying to kill him. Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day to day. And Saul had his spear in hand. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. By the way, that's when you know a friendship is over. Right? Somebody starts throwing like a spear at you. Like, hey man, we need to talk. We can't hang out anymore. This is over. But David evaded him twice. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. There's that phrase again. The Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. This was in hopes of having David eventually killed in war. And he went out and came in before the people. So Saul sees God's hand of blessing resting on David. And his response, instead of thankfulness for, for everything that God has done in his life, for everything that God has done in his friend David's life, his response, instead of gratefulness, is anger. His response is rage and envy. Now he hates David. He wants to kill David. Now remember, Saul had experienced a whole bunch of success himself. God had allowed him to be the first king of Israel. He had become a, a legendary mighty warrior on the battlefield himself. God had given him victory after victory. Saul had wealth, Saul had power, he had incredible influence. Saul had a ton to be thankful for. God had used him, especially in his early days as king, uh, in ways that most of us could only dream about being used by God in that way. But see, envy is never satisfied. Envy resents the blessings of others while blinding us to the blessings that God has given us in our own lives. I want you to listen to the words of, of James. This is the half-brother of Jesus in James chapter three. And this is James writing on the same, the same subject. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He's saying this is, this is not from God. But this is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. See, this is not only not from God, this is from Satan. Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil practice or evil sins. And so, now we, we've seen this, haven't we? We've seen this in relationships, we've seen this in families, we've seen this in churches, we've seen this play out in corporations, even sports teams, right? Where, where envy kind of takes root, where jealousy kind of permeates and becomes the culture and things just begin to fall apart. And so that just leads us right into the third truth and it's this, envy is a virus that will destroy you, friend. Envy, jealousy, it will destroy you. This is, listen, this is, this is no small thing. For some reason in the American church we tend to categorize sin Right, so we have a list of sins that we think are like really, really big and really offensive to God. So on that list, we typically have like murder and sexual sins and all sorts of things like that. But then we have this other little category that we like to keep over here of like the little sins that aren't really that bad. So like gossip and slander and jealousy, sins like that. But the problem is that's not how things work in God's economy. So let me just caution you, friend. Take this seriously. Let Saul's life be a warning to you. In our, in our house, for Cheryl and I, we, you guys know we, got, we have three kids. And uh, so oftentimes um, we'll have, say, like a cookie left over from something or we'll have like a piece of cake left over from like a birthday party or, or something like that. And so uh, after dinner, Cheryl or I will go and we'll take whatever we have and we'll like cut it into, into three uh, pieces. And without fail, what happens every single time? We, like, we pass it out and immediately they begin to compare. It's like, like, it, like immediately, right? they become experts in the science of measurements. And then the questions start coming like, man, why, did, why does he get two centimeters more cake than me? And why does she get the piece of cake that's got more frosting on the side, right? Comparison is the enemy of contentment. And literally, the reality is it's not just our kids or our grandkids that struggle with envy. It's us too, isn't it? Now, maybe for, for us, maybe for you and I, it's not like a cookie or a piece of cake, although maybe for some of you it is. But for most of us, it's like, man, we have these thoughts in our mind, like, God, why, why does he get to live in that house? Why does, why does he get to have that house? Why, why did she get the promotion at work? Like, I work way harder than her, and I'm smarter than her, and I'm better looking than her. Why does she get the promotion? How come that family gets to make that much money? How come, God, why are, you, why are you giving them such a big platform of, of influence and ministry? Why, why, why? Me, 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 God. Like in our, in our eyes come off of God, we start comparing ourselves, we become dissatisfied in our lives, and envy and jealousy, it filters in, it sets in, begins to eat our souls away. If we're not careful, just like Saul, it'll drive us mad. And so, friend, let me just encourage you, don't minimize the sin in your heart. Don't do it. Don't minimize this in your, in your life. I remember back in middle school, uh, throwing it back way back to, to 93. And I remember in middle school, and think, just thinking about middle school, it's a miracle that any of us survived middle school, right? This is like, it's gotta be the worst time of life. Anyway, I remember being in middle school, Birmingham, Alabama. It's 1993, and the coolest shoes in the world are the Nike Air Jordans, right? You guys remember those? I actually, I Googled and found the actual picture of the 93 Air Jordans, and when I look at that shoe, it still stirs something up in my heart. It's like, uh, 
It's probably like the blackened sin nature that's eating my heart out right now. But I, I, I see that shoe, man, those, those glorious shoes. Now, I, I grew up as a, as a pastor's kid, man. God always took care of us. We had what we needed. Uh, but we didn't have like 200 bucks laying around uh, for Nike Air Jordans that was gonna outgrow in, in six months. But there was, there was this one guy in my class, and this kind of tells you where, like, where my heart was. I still remember his name. <laughs> this one guy, his name was Joe Bagley, okay? So Joe, if you're watching this, God bless you, brother, and you have cool shoes. But Joe Bagley, he, um, he, he just, I guess his parents had a lot of money. So he, every year, he would walk in with the brand new, whatever the new Air Jordans were for that year. So they have like a new release every year. And sure enough, I'd get there in class, and the first day of class, and you're waiting for Joe to walk in, you're like, I've just not, I bet he's got the new Air Jordans on. And sure enough, Joe would walk in class, he's got the brand new Air Jordans on. And I remember just sitting in class, just feeling so envious of those shoes, like thinking, man, how can I make Joe disappear so I could take his shoes and nobody would ever even find his body? Uh, not, not, not really, but I, I did really envy those shoes. Even now, as an adult, man, um, you guys know, I, I, uh, Cheryl and I, before we uh, came here, we were missionaries, and uh, I was a mission pastor for a long time. And even as a kid, my parents were missionaries in Central and South America. And so, man, I've been in and out of airports. I've been on literally hundreds of flights my whole life. All, all those flights, hundreds of flights. Do you know how many times I've been bumped up to first class in my life? Zero. Zero times. Don't you feel sorry for me? No, not really. Zero times, man. I, I know people that have flown like three times. Like, yeah, but I, I got bumped up. I've never been bumped up to first class. Now, if you've flown much, or even if you've flown just like once or twice, um, you know how the whole scene happens, right? Who gets to board first? First class passengers get to board first. So by the time we uh, peasants in economy get to board, uh, like even though we've been waiting in the terminal for like four hours for the gate to open up, the first class people, they show up at the last minute, they just cut, oh, excuse me, sir, I'm, I'm first class. They cut right to the front of the line and they go in, right? Like, not that I'm bitter about it or anything, just that like I've noticed that this happens. And then by the time the, the peasants get to board, have you noticed that like they, <laughs> they don't even put the first class in like the back of the plane. You notice where they put it? In the front of the plane. Like, you gotta, you gotta walk right through it just so you know how lame your life is, right? <laughs> they just want you to know. Like, you're a loser. So, I, I got a couple of pictures here just to show you the difference between economy and first class, right? So, that's me on the top two pictures always flying. But you gotta walk through the bottom two pictures to get to the top picture. So, you walk through first class, man, and they're sitting in these posh, like huge seats, like sipping on some exotic drink with like an umbrella. People are like feeding them strawberries as they like watch their personalized big screen TV. And then you take off and what do they do? Immediately, they, they close the curtain. Like you're not even worthy to behold the first class people. <laughs> right, yep. You can't even look at them. <laughs> you're not worthy to breathe the same oxygen as them. And I'm not gonna lie, man, even as an adult, I walk through first class and I'm fighting it, man. Jealousy, envy, like, I'm God's servant, I'm on a mission trip, I, you're in my seat. I should be here, right? And I walk in and I'm judging everybody. I walk in, some guy, business guy in a suit or something like that, and I'm thinking, man, he looks like a jerk. Bet he's a terrible husband, it's like an absentee father. He does not deserve it. Like some college girl, and I'm thinking immediately, spoiled trust fund, baby set up to fail in life. Enjoy that first class seat, right? Some guy looking rough, I'm like, I bet he's a drug dealer. He should be in prison right now. He shouldn't even be on this plane. That's my seat. It's toxic, like this, man, this envy and this jealousy, this comparison. 
Man, it just, man, it crushes your soul. It zaps your joy. Listen, and James, James says it's demonic. Like we laugh at it, it's kind of fun, but th- it's dangerous. Like this stuff, if you let it take root in your heart and grow, it will kill you. So let me just ask you, as we kind of like process this right now, is, is, the, is there a place in your life where you've allowed the seed of envy to begin to, to plant and grow seeds down into your heart and your life? Is there an area of your life where you notice if you're just being honest and doing an honest self-assessment, like, yeah, this, this is here. It's in my heart. I need to deal with this. Are you comparing yourself to somebody right now? Are you comparing your life to somebody else's life? Are you resentful of God's grace, of his blessing to somebody else while being blind to the grace that he's already given you in your life? Listen, if that, if that fruit is present in your life, and I'm just guessing you're like me, so for most of us, it is. If that fruit is present in your heart, let me just encourage you to confess it and to repent of it. Just to cut that out of your heart before it destroys you. Now I wanna give you kind of a three-step biblical cure to the disease of envy. And the first one is what we already talked about. Listen, if this is in your heart, confess it and repent it. Repent of it. Confession and repentance is the key that unlocks God's forgiveness and restores his presence in our lives. That is the first step to healing. Proverbs 28, uh, 13 says this. Whoever conceals his transgressions or sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes or repents of them will obtain mercy. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I was sitting there this week just thinking about Saul's life. We're talking a lot about David, but think about Saul for a minute. Have you ever wondered what would have happened to Saul if he had just repented? Like if he had just come to God and said, man, God, I, I've been living in rebellion I've been living in overt disobedience. And God, I don't, I don't even care about the crown anymore. I don't, I don't care about the riches. Like, like, I just want to be right with you. Like, I just want to have a relationship with you. I, want your, I need your presence back. Like, what would have happened to Saul if he had just confessed and repented of his sin? How differently would his life have ended if he had just done that? Because as we read First and Second Samuel, Saul was a tormented man. He was miserable. He had everything, but he was miserable. And our God is a good God. Our God is always willing to forgive and to restore and to love, but Saul wouldn't do it. Saul's heart was hardened and he would not confess and he would not repent. So believer, let me just encourage you, run from this sin in your life. Cut it out ruthlessly, turn from it, repent from it. If you want God to use you, if you want God to use your life, you've got to deal with this. Confess and repent. The second step to the cure of the disease of envy is this. Cultivate a thankful heart. So we gotta confess it, we gotta repent of it, and then we need to cultivate a thankful heart. We all have so much to be grateful for, don't we? I mean, gosh, the fact that we're even alive, the fact that in Jesus, man, we we have forgiveness, we have peace, we have access to God, our eternity is secured forever with him. Are you kidding me? We get all that? 
Like, have you ever, have you ever just sat down and just, begun, just like start counting the blessings in your life? I heard uh, somebody just a couple weeks ago said that one exercise they do every year with their family is they have a, a thankful jar. And so whenever God does something cool in their lives or the kids' life or whatever, they write it down, they put it in the jar. At the end of the year, they open it up and they take out all the, all the little pieces of paper and they read them. And it just, it's like this rhythm of thankfulness in their life. He said half the time, they, don't, they wouldn't even have remembered like half of them. But they sit there and they, they read and they remember how God has been faithful and how he's been good to them over there. And it just bursts this joy of thankfulness in your heart, right? The grass is not always greener on the other side. The grass is green where you water it. So find contentment with the life that God has given you. The simple life sometimes is the best life. Look, I, I love... Uh, the season of life that God has me in right now. Uh, Cheryl and I were raising our kids and that's a whole lot of fun and I love being here with you guys and our faith family, love our faith family here at New Life, but I I would be lying to you if if I told you that there weren't days that I wish that I could just be transported and go back to the early years of our marriage. Just two broke seminary students living in a one-bedroom apartment, broke as a joke. I mean, literally scraping together, literally scraping together our quarters at the end of the month so we could go have an ice cream date. I remember those days and they were so simple, man. It was such a simple life, it was beautiful. I loved those years. Friend, learn to be content with your life, with your simple life. Cultivate a thankful heart in 2019. Here's the third step. Focus your life on Jesus. Man, that sounds so churchy and cliche, but it is so true. Jesus is the one who loves you unconditionally. Jesus is the one who loves you perfectly. He's the one who has made you. He has crafted you in a beautifully unique way. Listen, if God wanted you to be somebody else, he would have made you somebody else. But he didn't. He made you just like he made you on purpose, and he loved you. Believer, we we have to start finding our identity, rooting our identity in Christ, in who Jesus says we are. We are sons and daughters of the God of this universe. We are co-heirs with Jesus in the kingdom of God. We are new creations in Christ. And see, the gospel frees us from comparison, frees us from expectations of jealousy and envy. Look, I don't have to be the next Billy Graham. I don't have to be the next John Piper or whoever. I just have to be Chris Dillon focused on loving Jesus. Man, that is so freeing. Like no comparison, no envy, no jealousy. Just like love Jesus. Seek first his kingdom. And he'll add their other stuff in due time. Man, I love that. One last uh, thing I need you to see here. And then we'll, we'll end the plane. It's number four. And David's life shows us this again and again and again. Obedience to God is costly, but it's beautiful in God's kingdom. It's beautiful in God's kingdom. Go back to verse eight. Just remember, all David had done at this point in his life was be faithful to God. Obeyed him, trusted him. He had been submissive, he had served Saul. Look at the response here. Look what David gets in return for all of that. Saul was angry, very angry, and the saying displeased them. He said, they have ascribed David 10,000 to me. They have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul, I, David, from that day on. David had done nothing. 
And Saul now wants to kill him. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within the house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. What had David done? David had literally saved Saul's life on the battlefield, saved his kingship. And Saul's response is jealousy that leads to anger and anger that leads to attempted murder. And for what? What had David done? All David had done is obey God and serve Saul faithfully. And Saul is so enraged by his envy of David, he actually tries to pin David to the wall with a spear twice. Later in this chapter, we learn he also sends David to battle in hopes that he would die in battle, tries to kill him there. He eventually lets David marry one of his daughters to distract him so that he would be easier to kill. And then in chapter 19, we see that Saul instructs all of his servants, including his son Jonathan, to kill David. The next few chapters, what we see is David's on the run in the wilderness as Saul hunts him like an animal. David is literally running, hiding, living in caves in fear for his life. David was obedient to God. God blessed that obedience. He gave David success. He gave him win after win. But understand this, believer, our obedience to God always comes with a price. Always comes with a price. David lost his security. David lost his place in the palace. He lost his family. We learned he had to leave his wife to go on the run. He lost his influence. Now, it would have been really easy for David in those moments just to kind of like throw up his hands and say, man, this is what I get, God. Like, I follow you, I obey you, and everything. I put my life on the line, I risk my life. This is the reward I get. Like, God, I'm done, man. I'm done following if this is the way it's gonna go in my life. But that wasn't David's response because David understood, and, and listen to me, believer. Listen, God allows trials into our lives to shape us in incredible ways. We walk through those trials because we're obeying God, those trials are God's mercy to us. They're his mercy to us, not a curse. It's his love to us, not his abandonment. God's ways are always higher than our ways. He is good in all that he does. Listen to the words from, from James in, in chapter one. James writes, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And know this, believer, whenever you choose to obey God, whether it's following Jesus for the first time or stepping out, taking a, like a faith step of obedience and baptism or serving or giving or whatever it is, whenever you start to, to take those steps of obedience and you will kind of taste those spiritual victories and wins that come from obedience, also know this, opposition is soon to follow. Like clockwork, as one pastor I heard said, victory leads to vulnerability. We have an enemy and I promise you, you start obeying God, like especially in the hard stuff of life, oh, you're, you're gonna taste wins, you're gonna taste victories, but understand the battle is coming. Spiritual wins are almost always followed by great opposition, such as the price of obedience in Jesus' kingdom. Believer, the path of obedience is costly. Let me just encourage you, walk the path anyway. 
Because in the end, it's worth it. It's always worth it, and it's always beautiful in the end. So let me just ask you, like, as we kind of finish up our time here, what, what area of your life is God calling you to obedience in in 2019? Just kind of ask God right now. God, reveal to me, like, what, what's the area of my life where I'm not walking in obedience right now? And some of you already know. I don't even have to ask you. You already know. You've been wrestling with it. For some of you, the Holy Spirit is gonna begin to just like reveal that to you. What area do you need to walk in obedience to God in 2019? For you, maybe it's the area of sexual purity, right? Maybe you've kind of danced around that in your life. Maybe you've made every excuse in the book. Maybe you've justified it. You're just like, man, God, now I, I just can't do it anymore. I need, to, I need to submit that area of my life to you. I need to walk in faithfulness to you. Maybe for you, it's in the area of uh, trusting God with your finances, where you've just, man, you've tried to control and manipulate your whole life, and finally, you just need to like let go and say, God, look, I'm yours. Everything I am is yours, my talents, my gift, my time, my life, the money that you entrust to me, God, I'm just gonna trust you. I'm tired of fighting and trying to control everything. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you just, for whatever reason, you've got every excuse in the book of why you shouldn't get baptized. Man, it's been too long since I got saved. People are gonna think that's weird. Oh, I don't wanna be wet in front of 100 people. I don't wanna, whatever. We come up with all these dumb excuses. Or maybe for you, it's kind of stepping into Christian community. Like, man, I'm tired of just attending church on Sunday. I need to take a step and get into a small circle where people really can get to know me. I can get to know other people and we can develop friendships and we can pray for each other and I can be real with people and I can be vulnerable with people. Maybe for you it's finally using the gifts that God has given you, the spiritual gifts, the talents to build up the body of Christ. Man, we have so many ways that you can use what God has placed in your heart right here at New Life. I don't know what that step of obedience looks like for you, but I know that if you ask God, he's gonna be faithful to reveal that to you. You seek God, you'll find God. You ask God, the Holy Spirit's gonna make that really clear what that next step is. And let me just encourage you as one of your pastors here, no matter how scary or intimidating that step is, let me just, let me urge you right now, go ahead and take that step. Just, just obey, just trust God. Walk, walk that path of obedience. And yes, brace for the battle that awaits. But listen, on the other side of obedience awaits the life that God has for you. On the other side of obedience awaits the life that you really want, the life that really matters, the life that really is gonna count in the end. So as we close, I'm just invite you to bow your heads for a second as the band comes and I just wanna contemplate a couple of things and then we're gonna, we're gonna sing. Study First Samuel. Man, D David shows us really clearly what obedience looks like, what it means to pay the price of following God. And he teaches us that in the end, it's, it's always worth it. That in the end, it's always beautiful. More than that, David points us to Jesus who also walked the path of obedience, but he walked it perfectly, even to the point of death. And friend, life is found in him. The power to obey these things is found in him alone. The ability to navigate failure and success and life is found in him. Friend, in the end, it is, it is Jesus that you need. 
And so if you're here this morning, like you don't know Jesus, maybe you're a church boy, church girl, whatever it is, you know all the right answers. But if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with God through his son Jesus, that's your move today. You can't go anywhere else until you get that first step in place. So if you don't know him, let me just encourage you, don't leave here until you get that settled. Maybe you're here and you do know Jesus and you've walked with him for some time and maybe for you, you just need to be reminded that Jesus said, I am the true vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But Jesus said, if you, if you abide in me, if you abide in my love, you will produce an abundance of fruit. And so maybe that needs to be your prayer this morning. God, just help me to abide. Help me to walk faithfully with you every single day. Help me to trust you. Help me to walk in obedience, even, even when it's hard, even when it hurts. God, help me to abide in you and walk with you. Let me pray for us. Father, would you remind us that life, that real life, it's found in you. It's not found anywhere else, God. Would you remind us that, that real joy, it's, it's found nowhere but in you, God. We're not gonna find what we're looking for in comparisons to other people. God, we're not gonna find what we're looking for as we jealously look at other people and long to have what they have or to have their life or to be who they are. God, just remind us there's no life there. There's no joy there. So God, would you help us like David? Would you help us like Jesus? to choose the path of obedience. God, help us to choose you instead of sin. Help us to choose joy instead of discontentment, God. And we just confess that we need you to do this. We can't, we can't even do this on our own, in our own strength, God. So help us to do that today, beginning today, beginning right now. Help us to do it this week, God. We ask it all for the glory of your son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, will you stand with me?